Morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. I want to thank Harmony and the team up here for leading us this morning. Uh, and uh, just, we talked last week about coming together on Sunday morning and celebrating, and we have much to celebrate today. Uh, as you know, right after services this morning, we're going to have our family life hour uh, right here in the sanctuary, and, and there is a lot going on. We have baby dedications, we have a welcoming of new members, we have celebration of all kinds of things that God is doing in and amongst our congregation, and so we're excited to celebrate those things with you this morning. There's one other uh, item that I thought was really exciting that we should celebrate, and it happened last week. Last week, we took an offering uh, for Christmas gifts for our missionaries. And as you know, we have 45 missionaries at Calvary Monument, some active and some retired. And through the offering that we took last week, uh, there was over $18,000 that was brought in to share amongst those missionaries. That's something that we can celebrate uh, that God has done in our congregation, and we're just so excited to be able to bless our missionaries uh, with that Christmas gift uh, this year. So thank you for that, and, uh, and we really appreciate you uh, helping su- support the missionaries that God has brought to Calvary Monument Bible Church. We have been going through the book of John over the last few months, and today we are actually taking a break to go into the Old Testament, and, and as many of you know, this is going to be um, a little break for us as well as we leave on Thursday to go to Haiti, and uh, we, we're looking forward to it. At the same time, we're a little bit nervous, uh, I would say maybe even a little anxious as we prepare to leave our children for 15 days. They haven't been away from us for more than a day or two. I don't think they're worried about where they're going to be fed. I think we've, we've taken care of that. I think they're going to have their food. My mom and dad are going to be helping uh, watch them as, as well as their aunt and uncles, but uh, we would very much appreciate your prayers. Pastor Stan is going to be here with you for the next three weeks, and he's going to be taking you through an Old Testament study, uh, kind of some work that he did uh, when he was in school on his dissertation in the book of Ezekiel, and he'll spend three weeks with you there in the book of Ezekiel. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at an account from the life of Moses. And one of the realities that we're going to explore this morning is this reality of the fear of God and the fear of man. And I know if you're like me, when we look around our culture and we look around our world today, uh, the fear of man is evident everywhere. It's, it's evident everywhere. And, and we need look no further than our own culture. Just yesterday I was sitting in the living room and I was watching a football game with, with my boys. They were sitting there with me and a political ad came on. And, and it was so divisive. And, and it was so terrible. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this is where we're at. This is where we're at, and the fear of man surrounds us, and it's everywhere, and it's, it's very damaging to our culture, and, and really, we've lost our idea of what the fear of God is, and so this morning, we want to drive into our text, we want to drive into this account of the life of Moses, and our goal today is to see how the fear of God and faith in God are used of God to accomplish His perfect plans and purposes. And so this morning, as we look at Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to break our text down into two different stanzas. And in one stanza, the first stanza, we're going to witness how the fear of God produces obedience. And then in the second stanza, stanza 2, we will explore how faith in God motivates us towards love and action. And so we will discover that fear of God should produce obedience within us and faith in God should motivate us towards love and action. Now as we turn to Exodus, it's important that we lay a context down. Exodus follows the book of Genesis. 
And in the book of Genesis, God has made a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, he has promised Abraham land. He's really promised him three things. He's promised him land, he's promised him seed, and he's promised him blessing. And as we open up the book of Exodus, all of those promises appear to be in peril. And we open up the book of Exodus and there is no land. In fact, the, the people, the Hebrew people, they're in slavery. And the seed, well, it's, it's, it's in peril. And we're going to see as we go into our text this morning, the seed, the, the descendants that would be as numerous as the stars, it's in peril. And, and the people of Israel certainly don't appear to be blessed as they live in oppression under a tyrannical king in Egypt. Fear was the king's motivator. Fear of man specifically. And it ruled the day. Life was bitter for the Israelites. And fearing an uprising, the Egyptian king increases his, his oppression on them with a desire to, to literally crush the Israelite people under his rule. And it's under these difficult circumstances that we open our Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus. One of the major themes of the book of Exodus is God's plan for deliverance. And as we begin reading, we find ourselves asking the question, will Yahweh be faithful to keep his promises? Will he do it? Will Israel be delivered? Will the promises of land, seed, and blessing, will they be fulfilled? Or will the oppressive rule of a secular nation have its way over God? Israel's relationship with Yahweh, its covenant-making God, is in its earliest and formative stages. And we find ourselves asking the question, is there hope? Is there hope? Slavery, oppression, infanticide, genocide. Into this environment, a son is born. When we read these accounts, we must remember that, that when we read Old, Old Testament accounts, it's not, it's not epic battles of good versus evil. The truth is that God has already won the victory. And the beauty of God's word is that it uncovers for us the ways in which God has secured the victory, which already belonged to him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. We will be starting in verses 15 to 22. And while you turn there, will you pray with me? Father God, as we gather this morning, we gather with anticipation and with hope, knowing that through your word you're able to change our lives, transform our thinking. And Father, we come to you in a day where the fear of man has overtaken our culture and our generation. We look around us, Lord, and the evidence of it are, are everywhere we look. And Father, I pray that you might bring our nation back to a place where it would fear you and fear your commands. Where it would honor and it would love your word. And it would love you above everything else. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. Lord, we know as we go from this place, we can leave changed through the power of your word. It's with that hope we study together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called to the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here we have, as we open our text this morning, these two Hebrew women that are somehow able to gain an audience with the king of Egypt, with the Pharaoh, and his solution to the problem of the rising population of the Hebrews, his solution is emphaticide. To have these young male infants thrown into the Nile and killed. But he made a mistake in his calculation and his commands. You see, he believed that the Hebrew midwives would fear him more than they would fear their own God. And so Shifra and, and Pua, they're given this directive to abort the births of any sons of Israel. And now these women must leave and they must align this directive with what they knew to be true concerning the commands of God. They knew that if they followed the commands of Pharaoh, that their actions would not be done in obedience to God. And in verse 17, in the face of great hatred, under the oppression of a radical dictator, the fear of God wins over the fear of Pharaoh. And a picture unfolds here. Uh, Pharaoh representing the fear of man and the midwives representing the fear of God. And what we often find is that the fear of man leads to desperation and death. But the fear of God leads to obedience and protects life. And the fear of God is a word that in our culture today is probably many times often misrepresented. And I like to define the fear of God like this. It's, it's, it's not terrifying fear. I mean, that's, that's a part of it. But if any of you have been to Niagara Falls, some of you have been to Niagara Falls, some of you have been to the Grand Canyon, maybe some of you, uh, in, a, in a lighter sense, have been to the zoo and have seen a gigantic bear or a gigantic lion in its cage. Or if you've been to the Niagara Falls and you've witnessed the power of the, the falls, the fear of God, I like to kind of equate to that. Standing at those falls, at Niagara Falls, and witnessing the great power of the water going down and knowing that in a moment, if you step outside the bounds of safety, you could be destroyed. But yet staying within the bounds, staying outside and observing and looking at the beauty, you stand in awe and you're completely safe. Right? It's the same thing if, if we go to a zoo and, and, and maybe your favorite animal is a lion. If you stand outside the cage and you look at the lion and, and you don't go into the cage, don't go into the cage, all right? Don't. That's not good. You're safe. And you can stand there in awe and, and in, a, in a fear of that mighty beast that's inside that cage. But if you cross into the cage, there's trouble. There's trouble. And so I often equate the fear of the Lord to that idea. And, and, and here the midwives are fearing the Lord, standing in awe of his covenant-keeping promises to their nation and fearing him, wanting to obey him more than the Pharaoh. And what this leads to is a desire in their hearts to protect, 
protect and preserve that which he has promised to them. And so Pharaoh, obviously disappointed that the midwives aren't obeying his command, aren't acting in fear of him, but in fear of God, he calls them into into his chambers in verse 18. And he wants to hold them accountable for their failures in executing the commands that he's given them. And here in the face of Pharaoh, the women stand boldly. And when I, when I look at this and when I account the, the, the boldness and the courage of these women, it makes me think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember these men? You remember there was this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he, he had threatened to cast them into the fiery furnace if they didn't bow down and worship. But they stood with boldness and they stood with courage. They did not give in. And here we have Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, using two innocent female Hebrew slaves to oppose the great and mighty Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. His own people would have never dared to oppose him in this way. And, And it's almost as if he doesn't even know how to respond to these women's opposition to his command. And with the promises of God in peril and the covenant of God teetering on the brink of destruction, these women are defiant. And their unwillingness to take life is a testimony of their commitment to a God who gives life and treasures life. And here within our text, friends, we find a great example of foreshadowing. As we'd see this to be true all the way through the book of Exodus, God would oppose Pharaoh throughout the book of Exodus. And throughout the book of Exodus, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, would show himself to be far more powerful and far greater than any Egyptian Pharaoh could ever be. It was the will of Pharaoh to see the sons of Israel cast into the Nile and destroyed. But it was the will of God to preserve and to protect his seed. Pharaoh wanted to oppress the nation and its people. Yahweh was preparing to deliver them. And so Pharaoh asked the midwives, why have you done this? Why have you allowed these male children to live? And, and don't you love the midwives' answer to his question? I love it because it's, it's, like, it's like an indictment on the Egyptian women, kind of, right? Like Our women, they're better at giving birth, you know? They're just better at it. I mean, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, but, but they're more vigorous in childbirth. And before we can get there, the, the babies are already born. And, and this boldness, again, to just speak the truth. I mean, they're standing before what, what the Egyptian people would have considered the king of the world who would have had the, it, in his own power to have them destroyed. And yet they don't back down. They don't back down. They stand and they, and they tell the truth. And I can't imagine Pharaoh wasn't shocked, maybe a little appalled. You have this toughness and this audacity and this fearlessness, for some, maybe they would consider their statements to be even reckless, taking their own lives into their hands. But friends, that's the world that we're being pressed into today. And if we truly value the fear of God, and if we truly want to live by the fear of God over the fear of man, I think more and more often in our lives are we going to find ourselves confronted with very similar situations and circumstances as we make a decision to stand firm on the truth and the veracity of the Word of God. In a culture that's saying, well, that book's 2,000 years old. How could you follow it? And then those words, are they still relevant to us today? The church is saying, yes, 
and amen, and we follow this book. And we live by this book. And, and more and more today, friends, it's foreign. It's foreign, and, and there may be oppression because of it. There may be things that uh, we have to give up because of the stance and because of the fear of God. Uh, but we're only giving them up in the view of this world and not in the view of eternity. And so here the Hebrew midwives are putting a fear of God over a fear of man, standing firm, and as a result, in verse 20, the kindness of God was upon them, and there's a reward. What does God do? He gives them families of their own. And so we see in the midst of this great oppression and this great slavery, in the midst of this Pharaoh who wanted to destroy the the, the sons of Israel, God is working. He's protecting, he's preserving, he's preparing his people for his great plan of redemption. And Pharaoh is incensed. He's incensed. If, If the Hebrew midwives won't execute these commands, then he'll extend the command to the entire nation of Egypt for them to execute. In verse 22, Pharaoh says to all of his people, this is to all of his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And as we read this, friends, right? Be careful what you command, O king, for turnabout is fair play. And again, we're confronted with a glimpse of foreshadowing of what is to come. As Pharaoh would command his people to execute the sons of the Hebrews, so soon would he find the sons of his own people judged for their oppression and their cold wickedness as the angel of death would enter the nation during the Passover and show the power of God's words over the power of Pharaoh's words. And friends, we can press this narrative out even further, thousands of years further as we open the New Testament and we find the birth of another king in a manger, under duress, as another evil king, Herod, would seek to have him destroyed. Yet the plans of God, the plans of man, bear little consequence under the divine and sovereign plans of God. And so in the heat of these moments under the threat of destruction and the command of infanticide, the Hebrew people, they continue to bear children in defiance. And if you look down at the events of chapter 2, we'll come to discover how faith in God motivates Moses' parents to love and action in the protection and preservation of of his life. Look down at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. With the sovereign hand of God directing every moment, here we find a Levite woman gives birth to a perfectly healthy baby boy. And for three months, she's able to protect him and keep him hidden. And when she can do it no longer, she takes a a basket and she waterproofs it and places the child in it among the reeds of the riverbanks. The text actually says that she saw that the child was beautiful. Or in the ESV, we see the word the child was fine. And it's the same exact word from Genesis chapter 1 that God uses when he says it was good. It was good. It's the same exact Hebrew word. And what is good and beautiful, friends, is to be protected and not destroyed. It is the aim of the evil one to destroy everything good and beautiful that God has created through Jesus. And as believers, we must commit to honoring God by protecting that which is good and beautiful. And the Bible tells us that keeping Moses hidden for three months was an act of faith. Look at Hebrews chapter eleven twenty three. It's on the screen. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' birth, his parents, they did not fear Pharaoh's words and his commands. They acted in faith. And the text actually reveals that Moses' parents, especially his mother, show an active dependence on God. Look at all the things that his mother does in the text. She conceives and bears a son. She sees that he's a fine child. She hides him for three months. She makes a basket and waterproofs it. She puts the child in the Nile. She prepares Moses' sister Miriam to follow along. Everything she could do to preserve and protect the life that God had entrusted to her in these tumultuous times. And friends, a picture of God's sovereignty and man's devotion comes to light. As we see God faithfully orchestrating these events, using his people to protect and to preserve his plan. Friends, God calls us to action. And in the face of this great evil, it, it's, it's been wrong for Moses' parents to just sit on their hands and do nothing. It wouldn't have been right. And when we live in a world where we see great evil all around us, and we talk about this, and you turn on the news every day, and we see all of these horrible acts that are going on, and, and friends, we're not called to, to just sit on our hands, right? Our dependence on God is not a passive dependence. It's an active dependence. It's an active dependence on God. We act in obedience to God, fully dependent on God to accomplish His divine plans through us as He sees fit. And this is the example that's laid before us in this text. This unknown Levite man and this Levite woman, they don't passively live in fear of an unjust Pharaoh's commands. They continue on in the face of grave danger. When perhaps many would have done nothing and have felt justified, they live their lives. It's audacious obedience, friends. And it's the kind of obedience that God calls us to today. I, I kind of uh, liken this to holy belligerence. This idea that we see in in Romans, what can man do to me? Who can bring a charge against God's 
elect. Friends, we're not called to sit on the sidelines. He's called us to love. And love is a verb. And it requires action. And so here we have this man and this woman. And they show that they love the words of God more than the words of Pharaoh by acting in love to produce a son that God would use to save his people. And my prayer today, friends, as we sit here, is let our faith be this huge. God, would you let our faith be this huge? How magnified is the name of God by the testimony of Moses' parents? That we sit here thousands of years later on a Sunday morning together rejoicing in their faithful and active obedience that God was using to rescue His people. Our example of love in the face of fear, doubt, and insecurity is a powerful tool that God can use to draw people to himself. Look, when when, when we act in obedience in spite of the fear that surrounds us, when we act in love in spite of a world that may say not to love, not to reach out, stay away, when we still act in love, it's a powerful testimony for the church. Friends, it's it's a powerful testament. It shows us that our God's bigger. He's he's stronger. He's mightier than anything that the world can throw our way. And when it makes no sense, God calls us to act and to be obedient. When the earthly kings despise the things of God, God calls us to action and faithful obedience. My, My prayer, friends, is that we would not let fear stand in the way. And we would confront ourselves with the incredible paradox of our faith. And I believe it's a true paradox that we have to be confronted with regularly. Friends, we have more to gain in death than we do in life. And that's, that's the reality. That is the reality. There's more for us to gain in dying than in living. But while we're here, God intends to use us. And now in verse 5, we see divine intervention. Right? God's hand of protection over Moses. His mother makes this reed basket. She places, his, places him in the basket, and she puts him in the Nile River. Now, if, if any of you in here know anything of, about the Nile River, you know that there are animals in the Nile River, right? There are crocodiles in the Nile River. There are snakes in the Nile River. There are other wild beasts in the Nile River. And so if it's not enough that the threat of this son being killed by the midwives is weighing on this mother, she now has to make a basket and place her son in this basket and put him in a river that she knows to be filled with the threat of wild animals. All right, And that doesn't appear in our text, but we know that to be true. So this is a great act of faith. And she prepares her daughter Miriam to follow the basket down the river, anticipating what might happen. And as the basket floats on down the river it finds itself by no accident in connection with a royal party and one of the daughters of pharaoh is coming down to the river to bathe and now now we know that god has the power to change the orientation of a person's heart right we see this in the life of pharaoh as god hardens his heart and he won't let the people go. And here you have the daughter of Pharaoh, whose father had made it very clear and had commanded throughout all the world that the sons of the Hebrew wives be put to death. This man's daughter coming down to the river, and God's already prepared her heart. He's already going ahead. And as she comes upon this basket, this is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Miriam, Moses' sister at the time, a young girl was watching this situation unfold and she strikes why the iron is hot, knowing that the challenges that Pharaoh's daughter would have had in bringing a Hebrew boy into the father's house. The young girl suggests that she go and get a Hebrew's woman to nurse the baby. And not in any stretch of irony at all is that woman Moses' mother. Moses' own mother. And so we find a powerful testimony of love rewarded. Though the baby now belongs to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' birth mother would nurse her own son and be paid for it. And be paid. It's not just that, that she has this opportunity to raise her son in her home according to the ways of her God, but that now she's going to be paid for it too. And this is amazing. Verse 10 wraps up the narrative of Moses' birth with his own mother taking him and giving him to Pharaoh's daughter, which must have been so difficult. And the text says, and he became her son. He became her son. And what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that hold within it? It means that in a moment, Moses went from from being raised by this Hebrew midwife who happened to be his mother to being taken in and being a son of Pharaoh. Being a grandson of the Pharaoh. Being a son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, this would carry with it enormous weight. The name that was given to him, friends, is extremely significant. And it's significant on many, many levels. Moses is not a name that was given by accident. It's, it's incredible the ties to, to the different nations here, both the nations. First, from an Egyptian perspective, here's Moses, a child being raised in Egypt. The, the, he, the Egyptians used the MS verb uh, form in many names. And Think about some of these other Egyptian rulers that we know. Thatmos, Thutmos, Amos, Ramos, all of these names would have united Moses together with the Egyptian people. And so, in a very realistic way, he was identified now with the Egyptians in the name that he was given by his mother because it had that MS verb compound that he shared with so many other previous Egyptian kings. Yet the name also carried significant weight for the Hebrew people as well as his very name meant to draw out and specifically to draw out of water. And certainly the narratives of Moses' life would be defined by the name that he was given. The life of Moses would be enveloped by water. If you haven't ever recognized this before, it's it's amazing about Moses' life. It starts by water, right? He's drawn out of the Nile River. Water, Egypt, so he's found in water. Water's involved in his salvation. Later on, as you continue to walk through his narrative in Exodus, Moses actually meets his wife by a well. Water. He then later on, as he begins to, to, to work towards the Exodus and setting his people free, he then actually meets with Pharaoh by the water of the Nile. Water again. What do we find? One of the first incredible miracles of God in the Exodus is Moses doing what? Parting the Red Sea. Water. He takes bitter water and he turns it into drinkable water for the people. Two times he brings forth water from a rock. And so water being involved in his salvation and water also being involved in his judgment. Right? He uses water to consecrate the priests at the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Bible tells us that he abstains from water for 40 days while receiving the law. He actually drank, I think it says goat's milk. 
Never had it before, but I don't think I'd want to drink it for 40 days. And at the end of his life, he dies right near the Jordan River, immediately outside on the cusp of the promised land. And so the life of Moses in the Bible begins and ends with water. And you know, the Hebrew Scriptures, friends, they are amazing in doing this. It's so cool. Because if you remember, back then they didn't have the written word like we have today. And I think we take it for granted. Back then they had to memorize everything. And so what you so often find in the lives of these people is that their names are enveloped by things that carry along with them throughout their narrative. And I think it was done purposefully in a way that would help the children, the Hebrew children and adults, memorize these narratives. And so you have Moses' narrative from beginning to end being enveloped by water. In Moses' life, he's found as an infant in water, in captivity in Egypt, and he dies near water as a free man on the cusp of the promised land. Moses serves as an example of an Old Testament figure that points us directly towards the coming of our Messiah, right? Rejecting the rights and honors given to Egyptians in the royal house of Pharaoh, Moses would leave and come to his own people. Having all of the rights and privileges of a Pharaoh, he considered them loss for the sake of being with his people. He would descend from the palace of the Pharaohs and he would dwell with his people. And he would eventually draw the people of God out of captivity towards the land of promise. We ask ourselves the question so often as we come to the conclusion of our messages, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And as we prepare today to receive communion, we celebrate our great deliverer, Jesus, perhaps we should reflect on the ways that Jesus and Moses are similar and the ways that they're different. And so we see both Moses and Jesus draw their people out of difficult circumstances. Moses draws the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Jesus draws us out of the darkness of this world that is ruled by the prince and the power of the air. Both Moses and Jesus mediated the covenant between man and God. The covenant mediated by Moses and the Israelite people. And God would find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus were considered shepherds. Both were concerned with the proper worship of God. Both had intimate conversations with God. Both spent time alone in the wilderness. Both interceded for their people. Both were considered rescuers. But for as much as they have in common, friends, they're also very, very different, aren't they? Moses left the palace to dwell among his people, but Jesus left the heavens to come to us. Moses sacrificed some privilege and status to be among the Hebrews. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself like a bondservant who was obedient to death. Moses was not God. Jesus was. Moses' deliverance would be temporary. Jesus delivers us from sin and death permanently. The blood and the sacrifices bound within the, in the law that Moses wrote would only temporarily cleanse the people. Through Jesus' blood, we are forever washed and cleansed of our sins. Moses mediated for a time between the people and God. Jesus mediates and intercedes for His people before God 
for the rest of our existence. Moses could only save those who were in bondage. Jesus has the power to save both those in bondage and those who are opposing them. God used Moses to free his people for a period of time, and then they were brought into bondage again. Jesus is powerful to both save us and grant us freedom for eternity. Eternity. As we prepare to receive communion today, might we reflect on the great work of Jesus on our behalf, and might we be thankful for what he has done. And might the testimony of these midwives in Scripture, these midwives who feared God, more than they feared man. Might this be a testimony to us to be obedient in the face of times where it may become increasingly difficult.